we're the fifth richest country in the world and we cannot respond adequately to a health crisis of this proportion because all of the services have been hollowed out. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is... Imagining a new normal. Towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. Uh, We are really excited today to be remotely joined by Joy White, who is going to be talking to us about her new book, Terraformed, which me and T have been absolutely buzzing about all morning in our pre-discussions about the podcast. So yeah, hi, Joy. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it would be good, Joy, to maybe start with what made you want to write this book? Well, um, that's a good question. It's a good question. Very open question. Thank you. What I would say is I started to write this book um, in 2018, but I'd actually been thinking about it for a couple of years. And what it came out of was a kind of controlled rage, I think. And I just needed to find a way of expressing and recording all of those things that were troubling me about young black lives in in the, in the community that I live in, in the community that I've grown up in for most of my life. And I'm a sociologist. What am I going to do? I'm going to look at what's out there. I'm going to try and make some of those connections. I'm going to try and um, join up some of those dots. I'm going to try and, and make sense of some of the things that on the surface appear to be quite senseless. When I was thinking about the book, and when I started writing the book, I was probably in a kind of deep sense of grief and just trying to work my way through that, even though you never work through that, but trying to work through it in a way that was productive and would have meaning, not just for me, but for the the young people who were immediately in my life and beyond. So it all sounds a bit worthy, but it's not. I think that a lot of people are watching, observing, living, knowing these kinds of things from a kind of instinctive or embodied way. And this is just my way of bringing some of those things together. Right. It says that you're speaking to try to kind of capture what's going on and contextualise it and make it make sense for people. I think right now that's quite important because, like I said, I think most people understand it at some instinctual level that something's going on. But it just needs someone to kind of put it into words for them. And they think, oh, you can say, yeah, that resonates with me. I understand that. That's that's been happening to me. And it's not until I kind of started in my own kind of journey, looking at people's works like people like Franz Fanon and try to understand that process what's going inside me or looking beyond, looking what's happening in society. And you think, oh, okay, this makes sense. But it's through works like yourself that it's a bit more understandable for me. This is academic, but it's, the language is a bit more straightforward. I'm going to say it's artistic what you do in the mm-hmm. book, Joy. I think it'd be straightforward if I use one of your concepts of hyperlocation democrate democration. Is that is that, pronounced? Is that right? Hyperlocal demarcation. Hyperlocal demarcation. (laughs) The way you talk about the specificities of East London, Newham and Forest Gate, you talk about community, you talk about music and you talk about town planning. Mm. That way of bringing those things in together in such a synchronised, personal and social way, like it is brilliant. It's so refreshing to read. And it is quite, it's quite emotional though, like looking Mm. at all those different layers of marginality but also I did feel at times hopeful reading even though you sort of break down how destructive neoliberalism has been for black lives in this particular area and obviously more nationally across the UK there was something hopeful in your writing and maybe that comes through in the 
creativity and you you credit Sharp as well in talking about that. That was one of the things. So when I was thinking about this, I actually read those chapters again and I haven't read them. I haven't read them since since I've written them. So I read I read those two chapters again. And one of the things that struck me is because I am I'm a glass half full person. You know, people that know me, especially my daughter, finds it really annoying. But I'm a glass half full person. And I wondered whether that hope and possibility had come through. I wondered whether it had, because I really wanted it to. I didn't want it to be that book or that bit of text that talks about the damage, that talks about the destruction, that talks about the terror, that talks about all of these things without any recognition of of who we are um, as people and how we don't just survive, we thrive and we find ways to be whole and creative and keep going and and to share through all kinds of activities, community and, and creatively, to keep the generations going. I, I really wanted that to come through. I'm not entirely convinced that it has, but I tried. <laughs> I tried. I really think, and this is my personal opinion, it does joy. And I think one of the reasons why I'm seeing this book as a gift to sociology and particularly urban sociology is that it doesn't feel observational. It feels relational and caring I think there's something about the strength of specificity throughout that does give you that hope I think it's for you it's very personal isn't it that's sorry just one more thing I'd say is when I'm reading this I'm like shit this is like T's autobiography that he's telling me about throughout our time knowing each other (laughs) like I was gonna say Joe like when you was um, writing it did you were you writing it as a kind of like as an insider now going back to your community or as you're in the community did you find out anything you anything more about your community that you live in that you, you never knew before? That's a really interesting question because am I an insider? Am I an what? insider? Because Boom. in terms of when I'm writing about the past, mm. even though you can't no longer you can no longer inhabit the past. So when I'm mm-hmm. writing about new and past, I'm an insider there, definitely. Mm-hmm. But do do I occupy the same spaces as as a young person now? Young, as a young person? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And if I do occupy those spaces, it's, it's at a distance. It's through the young people that I know who are in my family, who are in my life. So I occupy it differently. So I wouldn't want to claim that I was yeah. inside. Okay. And also, just coming back to something that Chantal said as well, is that thing about not being that person that's just observing. These are not communities that are exotic species to be looked at and ticked off. I live in this world. I'm part of this world. Am I an insider? To some extent, maybe. What I think I am, what I hope I've done, is provide that link between the past, the present, and kind of where we're going. That's what I tried to do. For me, that's the kind of sociology I I would like Mm. to kind of be doing. But what I kind of encounter from an academic point of view is that idea that it has to be observational. This, this, mm-hmm. the, the passionate response researcher that sits there and observes that doesn't really sit well with me. Especially if I'm in, if I'm looking at something in my community, and I kind of reflect a bit for my life. Do you know what? Okay, starting from if we're thinking like chronologically between what Joy um, pinpointed us to look at, so it's chapter two and chapter three. I think what is really good about these two chapters is the setup and the contextualization and description of neoliberalism have you seen <laughs> have you seen a description of neoliberalism that clear in your no, life no, I <laughs> listen gentle we've asked people before directly and they fall to pieces they fall to pieces do you know what I mean <laughs> but do you know you know what for me it's not I don't want to say it's straightforward, but I kind of lived a life before it. Yeah. Mm. So it's having that entry into and then watching all of this unfold and its damaging effects and its detrimental effects all of these years on. And at the time, as services were being chipped away or sold off and we were told that, you know, well, uh, this is great. You know, this is this is great. It opens up um, services to competition. It will be more efficient. It's better for everybody. I'm old enough to remember 
um, the television adverts when British gas was being sold off, for example, and you, you could become part of the, the share-owning democracy when British telecom was being sold off. All these, you know, we can all be part of it. We're all in this together. We can yeah. all be... Aspirant. I remember the advert, that was an advert, wasn't it? All together. Up. Yeah. yeah, that was an advert. Yeah, I remember. I remember yeah, that. so all of these things. So I'm very mindful of that um, intergenerational conversation that goes something like, look at those young people and look what they're doing now. Aren't they terrible? That never happened in our day. But we can trace back some of these behaviours and incidences and situations. We can trace those back. We can see the origins of some of the settings that we find ourselves in now and in some of the challenges and difficulties that we find our way in now. And I'm sure that at the start of Thatcher's project, Thatcher and others' project, continued by New Labour and Tony Blair, I'm sure that there was that kind of purposeful and hopeful optimism that it was going to be better for everyone, better for all of us. But look where we are. We're at a point where we're the fifth richest country in the world and we cannot respond adequately to a health crisis of this proportion because all of the services have been hollowed out. Everything's gone. It's all a facade. There's nothing behind it. You know, about this, so Joy, I know you write about gentrification and kind of touching on that same point, like the facade. So for years, I was talking to my friends about gentrification and it's happening right in front of their eyes and not until... Not until they start closing down pubs mm. and replacing pubs with flats that they say, oh, this is a problem. But I said, it was happening all along. And you, you were kind of just a bystander. You just stood there and passively observed this thing as it was going on. I'm like, the same thing with the, with the selling of the services. It's, all, it's always been going on. But you, if, for whatever reason, you weren't paying attention or you had other stuff going on. You're sold yeah. the dream of individualism mm. that you yeah. can do things yourself. Yeah. What do you what do you think distracted us? What do you well, what, what do you think stopped us being active and well, turned us see, bystanders? Well, you see, at the time, right. So I'm just thinking from my like again, anecdotally, what was going on at the time for myself. My family were either some of them were convinced that they were going to partake in this kind of newfound wealth, so you could buy your flat. Some of my family bought flats and some stuff like that. A lot of stuff I was just more concerned about living. So for me, Absolutely. I was doing other stuff that was just preventing me from doing stuff like you get to become mainstream. Mm-hmm. So you're operating outside the mainstream society. So you're not, you're not really concerned about that. Mm-hmm. So this is coming through when I speak to my friends now about politics, the idea of voting, because they're outside the mainstream economy, they don't care. Like it doesn't, it doesn't affect them in their words. Like it makes no difference what I vote to. Yeah. Because I have no stake in this. I'm just trying to survive, do my own thing outside the system. Obviously, those processes of neoliberalism are going on, changing the place that they live until it's too late, until it's on your doorstep. Yeah. And, then, and then what do we do? You end up getting displaced. So most of my friends, unfortunately, most of them have either been displaced to Essex. Mm-hmm. And those that have stayed in the manor live in a reservation, effectively. Yeah. Uh, where I live, I live in a reservation. I, if I go outside, if I go to Brick Lane, Brick Lane's no longer the Brick Lane I knew place for tourists and middle-class people. It's really interesting to hear you describe that experience and that process and that notion of living on a reservation because mm-hmm. in many ways it kind of looks the same but it isn't the same. What made me pay attention was I started to notice that there were less and less young black people about, mm-hmm. just less and less. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then I was thinking, well, I can hear them because I can hear people's music I can hear people's voices, but they're in. They're not on the street. No. And then yes. who is on the street? And so from these small observations, these patterns start to emerge. You start to look at some of the, the, the theory and the policies and the plans for the area. And then bit by bit, things start to fall into place. Sometimes it happens so gradually, you can't notice. You can't notice it's bit by bit. And then, as you say, then there's one thing and you think, oh, well, that's not there anymore. And then you start yeah. to think about it. Yeah. It's even like when we used to go, say, for example, um, Canary Wall. Up until recently, like that was a space that we could go. But very recently, we found we get stopped by, not, yeah. not, by the, not by the police, by their own security. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Private security. So they look like police. Mm. And now I, I don't consider myself to be of the age group to dress in like that thing to get stopped, right? Mm. But we're still getting police now 
we got stopped driving in. Uh, I knew we were going to get stopped driving into that big roundabout going to Canary Wharf. Oh, oh. yeah. yeah. I, and they stopped us at lunchtime and like they're not stopping any other cars. First, the police stopped us. Then the security stopped us. I'm like, but you understand. Like, I'm of the age now, so I understand the game. But it's that idea that, that this space now, I'm no longer allowed in this space. It's, just, it's yeah. a private space. Yeah. Especially in, in the inner city, that what we find is that more and more space that looks like it's public mm-hmm. is private. And the only way that you can occupy those spaces is to be a consumer. The only way that you're allowed in is by being a consumer. And so it's it then becomes very easy to regulate who's allowed into that space, um, who's not allowed into that space. And also it requires resources. If you haven't got the four pounds for the cappuccino, you're not going <laughs> into that space. And the only wow. leisure spaces are coffee shops. The libraries are few and far between. The youth centres pretty much have gone. So for you to get into a, a communal space to meet people, you need access and the access comes with via resources. You need to be able to buy something. Mm-hmm. And if you do, can't buy something, where do you go? And so this, and again, your point about these um, these spaces that becoming more and more privatised, surveilled, regulated and controlled matters a lot if you look a particular way. I just wanted to return to a point that you made, Joy, about sound. I just read an extract that really, really spoke to me in the book. When you say, when I walk through Forest Gate now, I can hear music, laughter, chatter, a plethora of sounds that let me know that young black adults are in existence, just not outside in the public arena. Those who take up space on the street are older people and the newcomers, maybe in their late 20s or early 30s sometimes with small children, their presence brings different sound. I think that's that's very true. I mean, uh, you know, I'm writing about Newham, I'm writing about a borough that had a significant impact in the emergence of grime. You know, grime is a street corner culture, isn't it? Young people gathering in these spaces, youth centre street corners, the bottom of the block, wherever it was, and coming together and make it, making these sounds. And those sounds aren't there anymore. Not in that way. And so it's been replaced by something that's a bit more um, contained, controlled, sanitised maybe. Um, and that, it was just really important for me to to talk about sound, to talk about the sonic landscape. It's so important in Newham. And I also wanted to kind of make those connections with previous sounds because, you know, with different populations, being different types of music, it's always been that kind of place and it's just interesting for me now that it isn't that way anymore not in the same way what i find interesting about the idea of sound when people are being arrived in grime or the, like the scar music revival mm. in the 70s it's an inclusive sound at, at, at the local at the local level yeah. so it's not just it's not just a black sound it's a, it's a sound that originates with black music but it's, it, it involves the whole area it brings in young working class white kids it brings in everyone it's an inclusive thing it's a community thing. What I find interesting, especially with drill music as well, is the idea that something that's global, it becomes localised. Yeah. And when it, comes, when it becomes localised, it becomes localised and it's referenced locally. So the interactions are no longer, no longer global, they become localised on global platforms. So they start talking about each other, their areas, but on Facebook, which is a global platform. So it's a yeah. global thing that becomes localised and localised conversations happen globally. Yeah. which is a quite interesting kind of dynamic that goes on there. Yeah. I enjoyed talks about that through the use of signs as well in the videos, <laughs> like thinking about like channel, like the emergence of Channel U, like I really yeah. saw that, AKA, connection yeah, you know the, that. Local, the connection to the local and the global. And I think it, because it is, it's, it does force you to stretch your imagination, doesn't it? To think mm-hmm. about at the same time, you can have something that's so very local, be disseminated out into the world, in, in this uh, beyond its kind of diasporic form emerge on this global stage and yet still come back to these very very local settings and positions mm-hmm. and for something that's um to all intents and purposes so inclusive to also be a mechanism for policing and controlling young black people's behavior yeah so yeah. In, in yeah. some ways, it brings freedom of, of creativity and expression. 
And at the same time, it's also a, a method of control and curtailment as well. And yeah, locally, nationally and internationally, it can stop people moving or it can move people on from one place to, to another. And that's why I, I talk about grime music in particular in, in that way, because it's so important and it allows you to think about all of these different things. It allows you to think about the politics of, of space and um, and how um, how people are policed. It, it just allows you to think about housing, public housing, how public housing is used, how social housing is, is used. You couldn't get a gathering of young people in a social housing establishment now because they're ASBOs and community orders. There's a limit to what you can do. So in the, in the past, groups of young people could come together, maybe in youth centres, maybe at one of their friends' houses. This is what I mean about how legislation is used in practice. So an antisocial behaviour order for having too many people in your flat stops you. When I was younger, for us it's about, do you remember there was no, there was no intercoms on in estates? Estates mm. were just open. Then yeah. one day, these, these intercoms turned up and I remember thinking, what, well, what, who were they for? And as I got older and reflected, it was to keep us in, not to keep people out, yeah. it's to keep people in. Because, yeah. like, and you're finding, because over time they get vandalized, but it's to keep us in because no, no one's coming, we've got nothing of value, no one's coming here, no one came here before, it, it was a high crime area. But yeah. intercoms came in and it was to keep us from getting out. Yeah, that use of space, how space is used and who's allowed to use it and who's, a, who's permitted to go where and mm. to do what in those spaces. These are questions that are always, always at the forefront of my mind. The combination of policing of our bodies and policing of sound is so interesting. Like, obviously, we're talking about space here, a particular space here. But just thinking more broadly, like when we're sort of out and about here, or if we're at like a com academic conference or if we're in somewhere like, quote unquote, elite establishments in London and we're sort of chatting, we're just we're just we're not. We're just a bit louder and the way we are policed like either passively or assertively is so interesting but also really 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 annoying um but, <laughs> but when i was when i was partic particularly the way you make those connections to politics neoliberalism and then the interpersonal and how the interpersonal is policed based on sound and then on music it's such a good framework to understand the varying ways and how we are policed I think it's really valid in terms of thinking about grime music and grime being a response, an anti-establishment response. But also, I think your framework can work in other respects as well. I don't know if that was your intention, but it's, yeah, it's brilliant, that, basically. That, that was, it was kind, kind of what I was, what I was hoping for. I was trying to find a way that people could, could take that up and use it in a way that suited them. So what's going on in my area then? You know, how has, you know, what are the plans for my area? Because these are public documents. You can go and look at them. You know, they're public, you know, and they're pu published in local newspapers and what have you. So what are what are the plans for my high street? What's happening to that that building that they're refurbishing that's now boarded up? You know, who who's allowed to hold events in, in this area? All of these things, all of these things help you to kind of think about the changes in your area and what that means, what that means for different communities as well. That's what I was hope, hoping for, that it could be applied in other ways and in other places. And the issues that I raise are not, even though I'm looking at it from a very local level, they're not just local issues. One of the things that kind of jumps out when you were just speaking there about the kind of looking at plans, looking at what's happening, when they start trying to take over a, a group of flats, so my mum's flats in particular. Mm. So you have, you, I had the opportunity to speak to developers. So you say to them like, well, okay, is this really for everyone? Who is this for? Mm. And the developer and the architects will give you a, they'll speak in terms of regeneration mm. <laughs> and, not, and not exclusion. So they'll say, we're regenerating the area, we're gonna do this X, Y, and Z. But once you challenge them, and speak to them, you understand that there is a divide yeah. and inequality going on. So there's a, a bunch of private flats being sold because they need to make money off of these flats. And the social element is going to have to be reduced. 
Yeah. And you start thinking, and you think, well, what happens to the social element? Because social element is always smaller. So where do we go? Mm. Where do we go? Yeah. And some of the answers that they give you will shock you because they'll try to say we're going to rehouse you, but where? Manchester. London, Manchester, or if they say you have to put yourself back on the list. So the list is already very long. So at the age of whatever you are, you get put to the back of the list. You get no special preferences. You have to start from the very beginning. What happens once those communities are broken up? Mm-hmm. You, you, you also break down the capacity to resist yeah. any of these changes, the capacity to resist aspects of regeneration, um, if that's what they call it, that don't benefit the majority of people makes it more difficult and so when we get to that conversation or those conversations that say oh but why don't communities come together that might be one reason you know Mm -hmm. because communities are not able to come together and exist in the same way because of some of the things that, that you've described very easy to break up once you break up once you break that up how do you rebuild it do you think we could be, if it was more effective, if we had lobby groups? Because lobby groups are effective because they have money. Because mm. right now, when you're saying, when we're talking about stuff, it's almost like a moral argument. Mm. But once you have that kind of financial, economic argument, I think in today's political environment, that, that kind of adds weight to your moral argument. Mm. And I feel, because we're at the bottom, what we're saying is right. What these people are saying, they're making a genuine point about inequalities and all this kind of stuff. But People, the powers that be to see that as a moral argument mm. and we lack that financial heft to kind of make it a forceful argument. I don't know. These are thoughts that's going through my head. I don't know if I necessarily see it as a moral argument, though, you know. Mm-hmm. I see it as a structural, societal, economic and social argument quite, okay. quite clearly. I would say that if we don't see to these things, what's going to happen on a social and economic level and... Mm-hmm. Look at where we are now. All of those things about having jobs that are on zero hours, this so-called gig economy, but they're supposed to free everybody up, make a more flexible workforce. The fact that most people, and I'm talking about in London, don't barely earn enough to cover their, their rent or their mortgage because prices are escalating. They're out of reach for most people. It leaves people with very little to fall back on in a difficult time. Well, now the difficult time is here for everybody. And it's just exposed all of those, all of those cracks. Maybe before this, the argument might have been a moral one or people would have been more prepared to make that moral argument. Mm-hmm. I think now, when all is laid bare for everyone to see and the impacts of inequality on society. I don't know if this is answers your question, T, but like what Joy was saying about in terms of which events are allowed to be held in areas, for example, it's like who decides what is of value and what is of value cannot always be about financial gain. Like that is what neoliberalism has pushed this idea that everything is about mm. progress, finance, increase, increase, increase. Like, and actually value shouldn't be like that. And value should be about there not being health disparities because of the community you're from, because of the area you live in. And I don't know, I just, it's really no. difficult to talk to because it's just, it's so personal, it's so political. And it's like, who gets to decide what is a value? Who gets to decide what is moral? Who gets to decide what is just? And it is always the same people. And it is always us sort of arguing for a redistribution and an end to what has, this hierarchy, basically. But what I'm I'm scared of and why I thought that is because what are we prepared to live with? We've seen what people are willing to live with. So people can live with crazy inequality yeah and be happy with that because why the idea of desire is untapped they can you can keep desiring so i need a system that keeps up with my desire to consume because i want to be all right as long as i'm okay and my and whether it's me the individual or me as the family unit is okay the idea of desire to make my family okay is so strong mm. okay that and i like i said to you in another podcast john Maynard king speaks of this idea of limitless desire in one of his books in the 1930s Right through the depression. So he's writing about the the kind of mixed economy providing the idea of productivity to kind of match desire. So we have more free time to meet our desires, but that's never been actualized through mm. in neoliberalism. We've worked more hours to get more things because our desire, our, our desire to consume is limitless. Mm. So people are, are untapped, are unbound. So people are willing 
if you go to places like Detroit, people are willing to walk past people in the street that are dying because they can live with that inequality. And that's a madness. That's a madness. T, mm. just to contest your point, though, the mm. people that are, the people that can also live with that inequality and know mm. that their position within society is co- mm. it causes these inequalities are the people at the top as well. Hundred percent. So I, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm, I, I, so that's, so they're, they're the people. Yeah. No, I know you agree with that, but I'm yeah. just sort of saying just to flip flip it. The the fact that those with power don't actually care about mm-hmm. how their position and their decisions impact people and the inequalities that that brings out just it, it's something that's keep like as we're obviously in the middle of a global pandemic it's something that's i can't sleep right now because of how like ag- violent and aggressive those decisions from those in power is i know you're not disagreeing with that t i'm sort of just yeah. adding a but, but i was going to add just quickly like you're seeing this play out right now in america like even though there's no peak in the kind of virus over there, they're willing to reopen and basically don't care who's going to get sick because the, the idea, the desire to make money, the desire to carry on, the desire to look after oneself is so deeply embedded in people right now. And it's, it's and it's, well, I can see why we've spent the last, what, 40, 50 years on this project. Mm. I did I did warn you in advance, I am a, gla- I am a glass half full kind, kind well, of person. Yes, we need so that. I, I take your point. I hear everything you say. And why wouldn't you think that way, given the situation we're in and 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 how things are? However, however, there has to be hope for a better world. When people are talking about what's on the other side, when will we get back to normal? I don't think that the normal that people are talking about is what we had before. The amount of people in the last few years that were sleeping, sleeping rough just went up. You went from seeing one or two people sleeping rough to seeing lots of people sleeping rough. And in the end, it became normal, walking past the same people every day and seeing more and more people. But what I think has been exposed now in in some magnitude is how widespread that lack and those inequalities are, how widespread that even the people that appear to be doing well are not doing well. They're just about hanging on. They're just about surviving. And the people that we needed the most to keep everything going are the people that had low value. Mm -hmm. The Home Secretary called them low value. So all of these things, I think it would say the worst about the human condition if it didn't force a number of us to rethink those ideas that we have about who has value, who's important, what has value, and do we want to go back to how things were, or do we want to build something else? I mean, I'm sounding all, you know. You have to have hope. I have to believe in the old song that better must come. Yeah. It has to, because otherwise, how do we go on? But what, what my fear is, and I think is a reconfiguration of capitalism. In oh, ways that let's go. That's the danger. A reconfiguration of capitalism in ways that are more insidious and hard to point out. So one of the one of the things I kind of keep saying to Chantel is the offloading of work into the home. Mm-hmm. Now, this the home now, the work of early Marx, the idea of alienation from oneself. Now, work no longer in the office anymore. You're in your house, your home where you're supposed to have shelter from the outside world. Now work is in your house. Now all the overheads, you're, you're paying for all the overheads that work don't pay for anymore. Your electricity, mm-hmm. your internet bill, your time, your personal time, your personal time and work time will bleed into each other. So there's no longer separation. Capitalism has managed to get into your home life and alienate you from your true self, the only space that you had in the world that was truly yours. What is evident, what is, what is evident for me anyway, is that late capitalism, is, it's, it's not working. It couldn't find a solution. Market forces <laughs> didn't dig us out of this, did it? And so even no. though that we've been pushed back into our homes and we've turned into kind of these working pods, it's unsustainable because people are sociable. The thing that will affect people the most in the end is that lack of human contact, the lack of human contact. And no huge organisation is going to be able to manage that impact on people's well-being that comes from being isolated and removed from other people. Some of the people who were really looking forward to working from home in the beginning, you know, when <laughs> the first started, yes. Yes. the walls. 
screaming, <laughs> screaming. It seemed like a, um, a cost-effective solution, keep people at home, get them to use their resources and so on. But there's a social and health cost to it that someone's going to have to pay for. Just to bring us back to Terraformed, it would be really good to just talk a little bit more specifically and we do we have done this a couple of times on the, on the podcast about grime and about music and thinking about black youth culture and I really like how you talk about youth as in young people as time place mm. as the street mm. and thinking about how those two interconnect and then the other thing I wanted to wanted to ask you about Joy is the way you write about grime and um its roots it really makes me think about revolution um, and speaking truth to power. I mean, when I listen to it anyway, it does make me think that. But I feel like you really synthesise it in the way you write about it. Um, and I, I guess that comes back to my point at the beginning of the podcast about why this piece of work is so artistic is that it, it draws the, the relationship to context mm. is so important to understanding what grime really is. And I feel like that's, yeah... written really well oh thank you and I I wanted to tell a story I wanted to tell a story that with 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 many layers that was specific and particular but also spoke to a wider world that's what I wanted to do that's what I tried to do if I if I didn't write anything again and I haven't I haven't written anything much since um especially during this lockdown because that's the other thing Tisa your creativity gets sat when you're working on your own I haven't got anyone to bounce ideas off it's not the same through the screen I have written not a single word in the last five weeks just letting you know just letting you know in terms of being productive and thoughtful it's not happening for me it might happen for Mm -hmm. someone else Mm -hmm. but I kind of created this this idea of the class of 91 so that would make you 27 or 28 because that for me was the kind of age group that were kind of pinched in in all of this, pinched in all of this, um, experiencing all of this under the spotlight of social media and all the other pressures that that brings. And I just really wanted to try and tell some of those stories about some of those issues and be truthful about it and not shy away from, from things that were difficult. And some of it I did find really, really difficult to write even thinking about those early years in the in the in the civil I worked in the civil service and the levels of casual racism everyday racism every day just every day out there name calling quite painful to revisit some of that because our response back in those days you know you fought everybody you fought everybody now it's 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 a different set of circumstances and the consequences are yeah dire in a, in in a, in a lot of ways so i just wanted to tell that story with all its layers in all its complexity as best I could kind of from an insider perspective but not quite having one foot in one foot out so to speak but I hope I did it well I hope that the young people who it's intended for and find some use and some value in it and I hope that the people who are reading from a more wider perspective find it a useful piece of sociological work what did you think in terms of how Joy was talking about the emergence of grime and East London at the time like this is very much talking to your childhood like what was it like reading that back basically and as well as your childhood like you literally have family members that were part of that movement yeah 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 um I guess for me for me it's weird because it's a it's a time where I'm I was slightly older so I'm doing different things. So I think I, I think this this street thing, this this new thing called grime, whatever it was called at the time, I don't think it was eventually it had a name. Mm-hmm. But for me, I just thought it was going nowhere. So I'm in the house scene, I'm a house radio. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing other things and I'm thinking to myself, like, boom, that that's 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 too much of a street move because that's not gonna work. Because it's still bedded, it's still bedded in the clubs. And I like I said, I didn't really understand it, but the stuff that's going on, I'm trying to find my own way in the world. So my peer group, so some of us are at university, some of us are hustling, and it's just a very confusing time because you feel like everyone's trying, but not getting nowhere. That's what I found. Mm. We're all trying really hard, but no one's getting nowhere. And in the end, some of us give up. Some of us laugh at others who keep trying. So 
some of my friends used to laugh at me and say, why do you keep doing it? Because you're, you're always getting turned away. And I, I, I didn't have, I, well, in hindsight, I probably I could give them an answer. But at the time, I probably didn't give an answer. Yeah. Because I probably was just probably depressed. Because yeah. I, all I can remember is trying very hard and not getting nowhere. And, yeah. and, working, and working a number of jobs that I didn't like doing. That's the why. That's the other mm-hmm. why for me. To try and help to understand or to support people to understand about why it's so difficult. Why does it feel like I'm getting nowhere? What, you know, and to help people to understand not to internalise that feelings of failure. Everyone mm-hmm. else is getting there. I'm not working hard enough. I need to do more. You know, I've got to hustle more. I've got to work harder. All of these things that are heaped on the individual have some kind of societal, structural argument. That's the argument that I, I needed to make. I kept having these conversations with various young people and didn't have, didn't have enough words to kind of explain it in the way that I wanted to. That was one of the drivers for the book as well. That why, that why that you explained so well, yeah. that's, that's it. It's hard it's, though, like, you see that feeling, that feeling inside you, like, so sometimes you feel it and it manifests itself in ways that you would never understand. So mm-hmm. sometimes I'd be angry, but mm-hmm. not really unsure what I'm angry at, but I know I'm angry. Mm-hmm. And then as we're human beings, you start comparing yourself to other people mm-hmm. and you start seeing someone that you know is doing really well. Mm-hmm. And that anger quickly manifests itself in with, almost with jealousy at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you become, I, I'm speaking personally now, sometimes you become quite bitter because you think to yourself, well, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong that he's not doing? Mm-hmm. And that, that internalization, that process, it follows you. And again, in hindsight, again, I can see that. And maybe that colored in some of the, how I put myself across because mm-hmm. people react off you sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm putting myself across in a way where I think it's being quite open. But inside, like I said, it, it wasn't until I got a lot older, maybe into my 30s, then, and I've been working and I, I'm entrenched in a place that mm-hmm. that kind of feeling disappeared. And you're dealing with other issues. But that subsided a bit. It wasn't. It wasn't as, as kind of um, as present in my mind as it, as it used to be. That's really, really, really important to to say that because it is a human response to to situations and circumstances. And I was a little bit tired as well of you know reading things that were about people mm. about them rather than of them. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, oh God, I love that. Yeah, of, of instead of about. Yeah, and um, and and so, so what I was, what you said, what you just said, is what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I, it, it's a it's a response to that. I've I've had, um, that conversation many times with many people of various ages from you know forty down to to eighteen, and those feelings, those feelings of. Why can't it happen for me? I've, d- I've done all the right things. That's the other part of the conversation. I've done everything right. I've done all the things that I was supposed to do. You know, I stayed at school. I got X qualification. I did Y degree. And I'm still battling against it. And it's still not coming through for me. I must have done something wrong. And so the book is an attempt to kind of, to kind of respond to some of those thoughts, ideas, and feelings that we're aware that people have we just don't talk about it in that way I don't think we don't talk about it enough we need to talk we talk about the successes and winners and but we need to talk about you know the things that happen underneath that as well and um, and what defines success and what you know what makes you a winner is it money is it things is it stuff it's making me a bit emotional yeah it's making (laughs) It's making me a bit emotional because it's just so real. But listen, so, I, but I'm saying it's the realness. I, I think when I speak to people, I, I just tell them the truth. Like, mm-hmm. like when I've gone somewhere, like when I did actually make it in terms of that kind of path from university into the city, it wasn't. It was a hollow victory. I didn't feel like I think it was like I thought it was going to feel like because now I'm in a space and I, I mean, it's, it was similar to when I was at university. I didn't have anyone to kind of guide me. Mm-hmm. So you've been dumped in the deep end. And people are speaking to you where you're thinking, right, is this man mugging me off? Is he mugging me off? Because that's how I interpret everything, right? Because these people are communicating in different ways. 
and, and there's been no training, there's been no thing, but, but I'm in this place where I, where I wanted to be for so, for so long, but now I've made it and I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then you're in there and you're thinking, well, what do I do now? I've made it, where do I go? Do I sacrifice it? Well, no, because I've killed myself to get here. Mm. Plus, people are proud of me that I've got here. So what do you do? And it's a madness. And I, I thought for a long time, I was confused, man, because I've got all the things that equal success in this society. You've got money. I've, I've got that respect that people have. So when I walk in somewhere, I could say I'm in finance and people, they, they, they lick your ass so much when you say that I'm in finance. People behave so stupidly. And I think you're wrong. Like two, like two weeks ago, I worked in Tesco, you didn't say a fucking word, right? Mm-hmm. But now I work, in, I work in finance and you're licking my ass, man. It's mad. But that sense that I've made it, but I hate it, man, because mm-hmm. I, don't really, I don't really understand it. But you can't leave because you killed yourself to get there. It is really important to explore those ideas of um, what is success, what does success look like, and what do you have to give up to yes. make it and, and, and occupy those spaces that are not made for us, mm-hmm. you know, because there's, there's, there's a cost to that. And, and, and I think if we, don't say it, if we don't say it out loud, then people look on and they think, you know, it, it, it's okay, or that person doesn't have any doubts, or it's all right for them, or they've mm. made it, it must be okay, those kinds of thoughts. And it is, it is, I, I, I hear you, Shanta, it is, it is kind of emotional to think about the things that, the, that you have to do, the hoops you have to jump through, the obstacles you have to get over to achieve whatever it is these levels of success are, and then you get there. And whether it's through becoming a successful recording artist or whether it's work in the city, like there's so many people that don't get this quote unquote success. And I think that that's what Terraformed is. It's kind of like a letter to black to black people, basically, to say, look, this is what you have been up against. This is what we have been surviving through. Please give yourself a break and understand <laughs> the structures that have been so invasive and violent in your life that's what i was gonna say that's what i was gonna say so animated by so animated and excited reading it because it's just so it just speaks to that experience it just let gives people the space to actually breathe basically it's not about you as an individual this is what has been happening around you exactly that that's what I hoped that people would take away from it and um so yeah if it, if it does that I'm all right with that I can imagine the reaction in 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 some places I'm prepared for that listen joy we've got your back I'm fully prepared I'm fully prepared because, yeah, but as I said, there's no point going through all of this process of um, doing a thesis, writing a PhD, all of this kind of stuff, writing in the way that you need to write to get to where you think you want to be and then coming through the other side and not being able to write what you want, how you want. Listen, I'm going to put that at the front of my thesis. Joyce, what, 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 what date is publication date? It's, it's the 12th of May. Woo! Day after my birthday. Day after my birthday. What would have happened, um, there, were, there were a series of live launches planned, all kinds of things planned, but some of it's going to be online now. And then hopefully yeah, yeah. when we get to later in the year, I'll be able to do some, some live yeah. uh, discussions and what have you. But we're yeah, gonna be, we're going to be promoting the book via our platform and listeners, by the time this comes out, we're going to be comping some copies of the book as well. Before we finish, Joy, please, can you tell us what you've been reading and what you've been listening to? I need to frame what I've been reading. Yeah. In what we've discussed about the lack of creativity. I've not written a single word. I've barely read anything. I've barely read anything. But what I've started to read, what I've started to read is um, Toni Morrison, A Mouthful of Blood. Mouthful of Blood. And it's like a series of um, essays, speeches and meditations. Each each chapter is is quite short, which is good for me in a frame of mind I'm in at the moment. And just kind of working through some of those in the very early pages because I haven't gone very far with it. 
mm-hmm. about what what does it what does it mean to be a writer? What's the purpose of being a writer? Toni Morrison is why I started writing in the first place. You know, I had that permission to to write, read those stories, and 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 yeah. So that's what I'm reading very slowly and not looking for people. Fine, absolutely. I'm gonna lie about it, you know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I feel that as well. The lack of motivation is killing me. It's just, yeah. it's just difficult. It's hard. I find it hard. An amazing, an amazing text to turn to as well, Joy. And then, what are you listening to? Well, I am listening. I may you not are listening, but I am listening. So I think, um, and I was kind of, mm, do I go past or I go? I have very eclectic musical taste. You can probably tell. So, past or, so in the end, I decided on um, Kano featuring Popcorn. Can't hold me down. Yeah, as my track, but also to say, well, you have to listen to it and watch the video because the video is extra powerful. powerful. Yeah, Yeah. so all these things that we've been talking about here today, but as well, the love and the care, the thing about family, kinship, he's at home, the shout from Popcorn in the beginning just settles me, brings me home. You see um, Kano and it's intergenerational. You know, there's parents, there's children, there's people that clearly care about each other. And it, it just kind of calls me home from the, from the sound to the visuals to the words. And then right at the end when Kano says, you can't, you can take the kid out that ends, but you can't take the end out of the, that ends out yes. of the 100%. 100%. 100%. Still there. So, yeah. <laughs> Tea, yeah. reading and listening. I'm back on bell hooks, so black hooks. So I'm on a text, I'm in a chapter about the games. That's what I'm reading about the games. And then listening, I don't tell. I haven't listened to any music today. Oh, I've just been like trying to get back into that mode of do some work, do some work. No more distractions. Good, it's not good, working. Good. It's not working. It's not working. <laughs> I am also T. Coincidentally, um, I'm on bell hooks as well. Salvation, Black People and Love, the Love Trilogy um, for Bell Hooks has just been so important for me over the past few years, really therapeutic. And in terms of listening, as with previous episodes this season, my listening is usually about pointing to podcasts. So I'm going to shout out a podcast I listen to weekly, is Say Your Mind podcast by Kalechi Okafor very 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 important to me and how I start my week is listening to say your own podcast <laughs> joy that was incredible thank you so much thanks joy thank you thank, thank you. you thank you for your time and thank you for talking to me you're the first people I've spoken to about this this book really yeah oh, and thank I'm you. glad thank you. I'm glad because <laughs> it's kind of yeah I've got a different energy from this and for this yeah. now so thank you <laughs> thank you, thank and you. thank you, thank you very much, listeners. We'll be back next week. Bye. Take care, bye. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.